morning, citizens. If you have a Bible, uh, let me ask you to turn to Psalm chapter 5. On Saturday, about a week and a half ago, uh, Denmark and Finland were playing their first game in the European Championship Tournament. And these are two rival teams that were just going at each other like two teams would. And in about the 43rd minute, uh, Christian Eriksen, the star player of Denmark, fell over. And I think at first everybody thought maybe he just fainted or maybe he had some sort of injury that people didn't notice. But when they got up to him, they instantly knew that this was way more serious and way worse than they thought. Instantly out came the paramedics and you could see from watching it that they began by doing CPR on the spot to him and then really quickly within like a matter of minutes they moved to using a defibrillator to shock his heart and restart it and come to find out later from you know news briefings that his heart had stopped and it needed a shock to get it going again and in the middle of that global crisis because millions and millions maybe hundreds of millions of people were watching uh, online and watching on tv the hashtag pray for erickson began to trend on social media it became the number one trender for that day and it actually carried for a number of days and everybody in that moment of shock and horror and disbelief sadness um, was thinking there's got to be some sort of way to help this man that most of us have never met and never will meet. And so, thus, the trending pray for Erickson. In the early days of the pandemic, it was interesting to see how people also were shocked by the scale of the pandemic. And an economist uh, named Jeanette Benzin of the University of Copenhagen, she uh, started studying the um, Google searches and what she discovered specifically when she searched the word prayer in 95 countries, she found that it hit an all-time high. This was the highest level of searches for the word prayer in March of 2020. And she also found out that as every country would kind of increase in cases, the increase would also match in terms of people searching for the word prayer. It's just a reminder that in tough times, in, in difficult circumstances, um, whether you're Christian, whether you're Muslim, whether you're atheist, doesn't matter your religion, people in general still turn to prayer. They still lean into that word at least. I'm not sure if actually people pray, maybe it's just a hashtag now, but their minds still in moments of crisis go to prayer. And in Psalm 5, we find ourselves again in a psalm of lament, like we've been doing for the last number of weeks. A psalm of lament of David, who is the author of Psalm 5, um, in some sort of difficulty. Now, we don't know the details of this difficulty. We don't know what it is, but he is in a hard place again. But in this psalm, what we find is that David begins with prayer. And let's, let's read the first three verses uh, just to get us into this psalm and, and see where David starts. It says this, chapter 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For you, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. This 
is a prayer. And, and it shouldn't be a surprise, especially if you've been tracking with all these weeks. Last week, I talked about how chapter 4 and chapter 5, they work together. Chapter 4 is like an evening prayer, and chapter 5 is a morning prayer. But one of the beauties of the Psalms is, man, they teach us all kinds of lessons. Um, they teach us how to, you know, think about the world around us. They teach us how to think about God. But they also teach us how to pray. And Psalm 5 is one of those psalms that we can actually take with us and we can learn from it to learn how to pray. Using David's words and David's kind of structure even, we can see that this is actually a way that we can pray to God um, in difficult circumstances or even in moments of joy and excitement. Now, it's interesting when you think about prayer, you know, prayer if I were to ask you what prayer is, I, I think we talked about this weeks ago. It's a conversation with God. But prayer, you know, for many people is many different things. If you are religious, um, it might be something that you do to gain favor with your God or with God. You know, you're going to pray so that God is happy with you. Maybe you're, you know, you're doing rosaries or maybe you're going to a special temple. Whatever it is, God's going to be happy with you because you're praying to him. It might be a cultural thing. Maybe you grew up in a place where it's just cultural and it's, you know, it's an important thing. And I just saw even this week in the news in Florida, they passed a, a law kind of um, dictating that all students should have at least one minute to do some sort of meditation or prayer of their choice within the school day. Okay, so it's like this is an important in the state of Florida, obviously, and so they have put it in law. Okay, it becomes a, a, a culturally driven thing. Or maybe it's just for personal benefit, you know, like the hashtag pray for Erickson. Maybe it's just like, I'm feeling bad about this situation or I'm in a hard spot. And so I'm going to pray to whoever, to some sort of deity, maybe even to God that I'm familiar with so that God will help me personally. Whatever it is, we know as Christians, or we should be learning and should be growing in our understanding that when we pray, it's not just to do something, it's not to gain favor, it's not just to have our way. Prayer actually begins for the Christian as a, as a way to have a relationship with God. It's a means, it's, it's a conversation with God. And Jesus was amazing at kind of showing prayer in the Gospels, and, and when the disciples asked him, um, to teach them to pray, he taught them the Lord's Prayer, and many of us are familiar with that. The beautiful thing about the Lord's Prayer is it begins in a relational way. The first lines are, Our Father in Heaven. Our Father. That's a relational language there. In the uh, New American Commentary um, on this uh, text here on the Lord's Prayer, it says this, the use of this intimate term for God, this Our Father, the use of this intimate term is almost the equivalent to the English Daddy, okay? And it says that this is virtually unparalleled in first century Judaism. Christians should not consider God as accessible as, sorry, Christians should consider God as accessible as the most loving human parent. Okay, so Jesus, in his explanation on how to pray, he says, here's how you pray. You pray to your father, and that language is actually deeply personal family relationship. So you may have learned all kinds of different ways to pray. Maybe you memorized the Lord's Prayer, 
or maybe you've done, you know, like you're just practicing being grateful or thankful, so you, you know, say that often, your thankfulness to God, or maybe you've learned like the ACTS, you know, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, some sort of formula like that. Maybe you've memorized that, but the Psalms actually are given to us so that we can use them for our, you know, edification, the building up of our own souls and our relationship with God and in our relationship as a church. So the Apostle Paul in Ephesians and Colossians encourages those churches to use the Psalms. They are a gift to us. They are a tool for us to use. So Ephesians 5 verse 18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he says, in this filling, then, this is what you should be doing when, this, when you're filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says, listen, here's what you can do when you're filled with the Spirit and when you're together, use the psalms. And use music, use all these things to, to bring you together as a body so that you can worship God and that you can make him known. And so the Psalms are actually given to us so that we as believers can use them to help us in our prayers and in our worship to God. So we can use the Psalms to pray back to God. And that's what we're going to do with chapter 5 here, you know, because for some of us, I think, um, our prayer life gets dry, gets dull. We just don't know what to say maybe to God. We kind of repeat the same things or maybe all we have is just a list of requests and needs and we're just like, man, is this, is this all that prayer is supposed to be? And, and listen, all those things are very important and God says repeatedly that he wants to hear from us the things that are on our heart. But we can also pray back to God and, and grow in our understanding of prayer to God through something like using the Psalms and using Psalm 5. So in Psalm 5, we're going to take this, uh, just parts of this Psalm as a little template to help us learn how to increase our prayer life. Okay, so the first, in three ways we're going to do that. The first one is this, in your prayers, remember who God is. Remember who God is. Look at verse 4. Starting in verse 4 to verse 6, it says this, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And then look all the way down at verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. So here David is talking about his enemies. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So what you have here in, in these verses, in, in verses 4 through 6 and in verse 9, is this picture of God, who God is, especially in contrast to mankind. J.I. Packer, in his book, uh, Knowing God, he opens with a quotation from a, a sermon from 1855. It's an unnamed uh, preacher, but it says this, there is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. 
Okay, so basically in, in our language, there's something like magnificent about thinking about God. Then he goes on to say this, It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. And the author here is saying, God and, and the study of God and understanding God is just so vast and infinite that we should be humbled in the process. And here David says, when, when we pray to God, we need to know who God is. And so he contrasts God, this amazing, beautiful, good being with, you know, the, the deceitfulness and the, the difficulty of being a person and being a human in this world. There's this contrast of two things. But note what David is essentially saying here. David is saying this, God is not touched by evil. God is not touched by evil. People are, all of us are, we are, you know, inconsistent in our lives. We make mistakes. We do things wrong on, on a daily basis. On our best days, we aren't even anywhere near God's goodness. But God, when we go to him in prayer especially, we need to remember he is good. He is good. He is perfectly, infinitely good. Now, many of us associate power with evil or wrong. So we think of even maybe a being like God who is ultimately, you know, the most powerful being. And we might equate that with evil because we're used to that. We're used to seeing people in power do evil things. So I've been watching a few kind of older movies from the 90s. So recently we watched um, Clear and Present Danger. I don't know if you've seen that from the late 90s. Harrison Ford kind of in his peak, you know, some good Tom Clancy movies. And in that movie, Harrison Ford is playing this high-level a government worker who stumbles upon this whole plan. He doesn't really stumble upon it. It's kind of happening behind his back of the president, one of his friends, you know, being killed by drug cartels in Colombia. And the president gets like emotionally involved in that moment. And he starts a little proxy war in Colombia. And the whole thing is just a gigantic mess. But what the movie does and what the premise of the movie is, is kind of this idea of like behind ultimate power, there's just evil that's lurking and wrong things are continually and regularly happening. So there's this saying, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Maybe you've heard that before. And that's essentially what we think of when we think of power. We think power and leadership equals deceit and corruption. But here David is saying, in verse 4 especially, that there is no wickedness at all. Evil does not dwell in God. God is not like us. We need to be clear in this contrast. Man is a certain way. God is not like us. God is good. And so, man, that makes reading parts of the Bible kind of tricky. You're like, man, what is going on here? What is God doing? What is God allowing? How is he allowing these things to happen? But from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the, the theme is clear. The message is clear. God's goodness is from the first page to the last page. He is good. He is infinitely good. The problem for many of us is that we often only know this as fact. And we often only know things about God versus actually experiencing God. And that makes following him really difficult. It makes praying to him really difficult. Um, recently, I read an article 
um, where Francis Chan was interviewed and he was talking about the effects of knowing about God or knowing and experiencing God for real. And he says this, he says, I'm seeing so many people, friends of mine who were in ministry, who were just saying they don't believe or they're walking away. And I don't know if I believe that anymore. So these are things that, you know, all of his friends were saying. And I just think that's crazy. We're seeing people that we look up to, leaders who are falling. We're seeing the world look at evangelical Christianity as an absolute joke right now. It's every day you can just jump on Instagram and someone is saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. And what he goes on to say then is, the experience of Isaiah 29, 13 is happening. And that verse says this. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel. It says, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Chan is saying, man, we're doing the same thing that the nation was doing. We're saying the words. We know maybe the doctrine. We can quote this stuff. But it's actually not entered into our hearts. These are just words on our lips. So Chan goes on to say, don't get away from your own encounter with God. He said, we have to be sure, we have to make sure that we get people to encounter him and that they fear, their fear of God is not just a commandment that was taught by them by us, taught to them by us. People need to experience this. So the question is, in this psalm, it talks about the character of God, the goodness of God. Do you know that and have you experienced that through your life? As you look back at the things that God has done for you, do you recount those things? When you pray to God, do your prayers magnify his goodness? You can take these verses and use them to magnify the goodness of God and to take that, his, his character and, and who he is and bring it deeper into your very heart so that it's not just words out of your lips. Number two, in your prayers, remember who you are. Remember who you are. So look at verse 7. David says this, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. And verse 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may exult in you. Remember who you are. I don't know if you remember when you were a kid what it was like to come home from, from school, maybe, and um, you walk in the door and you smell, I don't know, maybe like uh, fresh cookies that are baked, or maybe you come in from playing from your friends and you smell like dinner or, you know, something like a cake just comes out of the oven, something great that your, makes your mouth water instantly. And you know that you're like, you're a part of the family. You can just walk in the door. And I mean, if it's not too close to dinner, you can just like take a cookie. Or maybe you can be like, hey, how many cookies can we have right now? And your mom or your dad is like, okay, you can have two. But you are a part of the family. You can just take those. It's totally different if you are walking into a guest's home. Um, you're just a little bit more hesitant. You're not just going to walk up and, and do what you want to do. David notes here. That God loves abundantly and steadfastly. David is saying, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know about you before God. That you can enter into his presence because of his steadfast and his abundant 
love. David describes the scene of entering into God's city, entering into Jerusalem and into God's temple. And David, you know, he's not saying, I get to go into that place because I'm the king, because I'm the chosen one. I'm David, man. I write these psalms. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, the reason that I can enter into that, I enter your house because of abundance and steadfast love. It is because of God's mercy and grace. This word abundant is, you see it throughout the Old Testament. You see it all over the place. One of the places that was really interesting that I saw it used was in 1 Kings 10.10, when the queen of Sheba comes to visit King Solomon. That word abundantly is used when it talks about all the spices and the things that she brought. It says that she brought this you know, very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come into Israel as from the Queen of Sheba. So just picture it. Camel caravans, right, of just loaded down with spices and herbs from Africa coming in to Solomon's palace. This is the image that we're supposed to have in our minds when we talk about being in God's presence and, and how we are allowed to be in his presence. It's because of his love, just lavished out towards us, his abundant and steadfast love. And this word steadfast is, you know, the, the Hebrew word is hesed. It's a covenant loving kindness. So it'd be like the love that you have for another person, but add to that then this element of loyalty, a loyal, deeply devoted love towards us. That's the reason why we can enter in to God's presence. But maybe you're still asking, like, but, but how do I really know that that's the case? How do I really know? Because many of us, like, doubt that God's goodness is towards us. We just have, there's so many reasons why. It, it made me think of the movie Nemo, you know, when, when um, Nemo's dad and Dory are stuck in the whale. I don't know if you've seen that movie. They're stuck in there. It kind of looks like, man, this is worst case scenario. And Dory supposedly speaks whale, right? She's talking to the whale back and forth. And she says, the whale says we need to go to the back of the throat. And Nemo's dad is like, that sounds like a terrible idea. And he's just like stuck in that moment. He's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can trust this. And so he's clinging on till the last minute. So how do we know that God's abundant loving kindness, his steadfast love is towards us? Our greatest answer is in the person of Jesus. He is the one who shows us God's, the extent to, to which God goes to give us love and to just abundantly lavish grace on us. His journey to the cross, not for his own benefit, only for his own glory and for our benefit so that we can have a relationship with him, he went all the way to the cross. Not halfway, not kind of right to the end and, you know, oh, maybe there's like a plan B. No, it was like all the way to the end. And Romans 8, 31 says this, what then shall we say to these things, to, to all the description of what it meant for Jesus to go to the cross? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So, man, David says, Lord, in our prayers, we can enter right into your presence. We can tell you everything intimately like a, like a father waiting to hear every story. And we can get right into your presence, not because of what we've done, not be because of who we are, but because of your 
abundant grace. Number three, and the last one, is in your prayers, remember who you follow. Remember who you follow. We go on uh, bike rides as a family, and there's always one person that kind of rotates, but there's one person that goes in front, and that is the person that we follow. So they get to determine, are we going to bike into, you know, the old part of town? Are we going to bike into the bird land or into the new part of town? They are the leaders. And here, David in his prayers points us to that very idea. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says this, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Do you hear that language? Lead me into your righteousness, your right acts. Lead me down your way. Here David is saying, I want to follow your way, God. Not my own way. David had, man, plenty of experiences where he followed his own way. You know, the most famous one that we're aware of is Bathsheba and him kind of choosing to sleep with her and kill her husband. And when he chose his way, man, it was disaster. But now here he says, God, you lead me. You go before me. In the things that I'm going to do in this life, in the things that I am going to be committed to, you go before me. I want to follow you. I will go behind you. You're the leader. You have your way. Our prayers should be filled with language that actually gives God the ultimate place and gives him the ultimate direction. Now, he has that whether we like it or not. But these prayers remind us of that. They, they get us to think about that and to pray to that end so that God has his way, that he is the one who's going before us. And it's not us who is determining, you know, to go left or right, but God is actually the one who's doing it. But listen, as we do that, God has not made us as robots where he is just leading and we're just eyes closed. We just do what we're programmed to do. He has made us as people with choice, to choose to follow him or not to follow him. So the question is, how do we get to the point where we want what God wants? That's where we want to get to, where God is leading us and, and where he's going, we actually want to go there. And that's part of actually what prayer is doing, is convincing, it's, it's helping us shore up and, and understand that what, what is our greatest need is to want what God wants. Then we'll go down that path, whatever it is, whether it's good or bad, because we know that that is actually the best place, because it's the place where God is taking us. James 4.13 says this, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time, a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. Here James is saying, listen, when it comes to your life, don't live in such a way where you have it all planned out. Whether God is a part of it or not, you don't really care. You're just moving in a direction. You've got a three-year plan. You've got a five-year plan. You've got a life plan, whatever it is. James says, don't, don't live that way. That is not the way for us to live as believers. He says, commit your ways. Say, if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. So James is not saying don't ever plan. He's saying you have a plan in place. But he says that plan that you have, commit it to God. 
And when you pray, commit it to God and say, God, what is the road that you are going down? Because that's where I want to go. Listen to these other verses that kind of speak along the same line and, and we'll, we'll close with these thoughts here. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. All right, so you've got choices to make. You're not a robot, but God is the one who's actually planning your steps. Job, at the end of his life, after, man, experiencing horrific pain and difficulty and, and talking to friends and praying to God, he says this in Job, Job 42, 2. It says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Man, Job came to the realization that God, whatever you want to do is going to happen. And your plans don't get messed up by anybody, not me, not anybody else. For right or wrong reasons, your plans go forward. In Genesis 15, at the end of Joseph's life, you know, going through all this difficulty, he says this, As for you, he's talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Man, Joseph somehow able to keep that perspective that in all these hard times of his life, God was going before him. God was continually on the journey. He was one step ahead of him and Joseph was just following him. Whether it was the worst of circumstances or the best of times, this psalm reminds us God goes before us. The Lord is leading us and, and help, help me to acknowledge that through my prayer life and to see it actually in action before me. Let me just conclude with this. Sometimes you leave a message um, with the short memorable phrases or like today I've tried to kind of encapsulate it in three memorable points, if you forgot them. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. Remember who you follow. But listen, I, I know how this works. Most of us, myself included, tend to forget these messages, all right? Most preachers know that. They're, they are meant for the moment, and maybe for another moment if you need encouragement and, and you catch it on YouTube or, or some other, on some other medium. But the beauty of the Psalms is they are your and my reminder, or maybe they are your and my cheat sheet, okay? You might not remember these three points, but at any given time, you can take out your phone, you can take out the Word of God. And when you go to God in prayer, and maybe you have things that you specifically ask God about, maybe there's even a little bit of a list that you take to God, and then you say, what else do I say to God? What else do I speak to Him about? This God who is my Father. You can pull out Psalm 5, and you can go to verse 4 and 5 and 6, and you can magnify God and who He is and His character. And then you can go down a little bit further in verse 7 and you can just see that God has brought you into his presence because of his abundant, steadfast love. And then you can come to verse 8 where God says, lead me. Sorry, where David says, lead me, and it's God who goes before him. And you can ask God to lead you in all the circumstances of your life. You can use Psalm as a model for you to pray to your heavenly father so let the psalms teach you how to pray and maybe use psalm 5 even this week to grow in depth in your knowledge of god and in your prayer life to him
Let's pray together. God, thank you for this uh, beautiful psalm, this psalm of a morning prayer. Lord, I pray that you would help us grow in our ability to pray to you and to know you and to depend on you for all the areas of our life. Lord, continue to lead us one day at a time to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.